Morning, everybody. This is what happens when I'm preaching and I'm the major extrovert is I just let everybody talk longer. If Dan was here, he'd have wrapped y'all up about five minutes ago. Been about a 30-second greeting. Would you get a little bit more time with me this morning? Welcome to Restoration. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us, whether you're in person, watching online with us, um, whether you're visiting with us, a longtime member here, thanks for worshiping with us this morning. So we're continuing a series that we've been in uh, for quite a while already in 1 Samuel. Uh, last week, Dan took us through chapter 8. We'll be looking today at all of chapter 9 and uh, a little bit, maybe the first half of chapter 10. There's a lot that happens in these chapters if you remember last week, or if you weren't with us, uh, Dan, at the end of chapter 8, took us through a very significant moment in the history of Israel. The people have demanded a king. You know, this series the whole time has been about God being the true king of Israel. But the people have rebelled in their hearts against God, and they've asked him, essentially to give them a king like the nations around them. They were supposed to be different than the nations around them, but they've asked God to give them a king like the nations around them. So what's going to happen? That's the question that everyone, us and the original readers of this text, would have been asking at the end of chapter 8. What's about to happen? So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to read through the entire chapter and a half, and then we'll pause at different moments and get some different ideas of what's happening and I'll explain things or we'll ask some questions. But if you have your Bible or a Bible app, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you don't, there's a pew Bible in front of you and we're on page 231. So 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 1, let me start reading. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Apha, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So we just ended chapter 8 with God telling Samuel, okay, fine, obey the people, make them a king. And then we immediately zoom in on this man Kish and his son Saul, who's described as the tallest, most handsome man among the people of Israel. But he's also from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest, most obscure, least thought of tribe. And so we're faced right away wondering, is this supposed to be the guy? God says, okay, give him a king. Here's this guy, Saul, handsome, tall, but from Benjamin. Is this the guy? Is this supposed to be the king? Something big must be about to happen. But we're going to be a little surprised, I think, by what we read next. Pick up in verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalasha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Salim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. 
When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man who's held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was, and they went up on a hill to the city, and they met young women coming out to draw water, and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He's come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who were invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. So we just finished chapter 8 and the first two verses of chapter 9. And it seemed like we were about to get some big, exciting story about this tall, good-looking man, Saul, maybe becoming the king, maybe something heroic, defeating God's enemies, doing something incredible. And instead, we get a story about donkeys, about wandering around the countryside, about whether they have the money to pay this man of God to tell him where to find the donkeys. What's going on? Why are we hearing this story about donkeys? What does this have to do with anything? More importantly, where's God? We just had this huge moment in the history of Israel and God's kingdom. The people have demanded a king. God says, fine, give them a king. And now donkeys. And there's no mention of God. So it begs the question, have the people gotten what they wanted? Have they relegated God to the sidelines and so now he's out of the picture? He's no longer the king. Maybe this guy Saul's the new king if he can find his donkeys. We don't know. What we do know is this is a really odd way to start chapter 9 after how chapter 8 just ended. Because this entire story so far seems just full of mundane, regular, random life. Right? It's the kind of stuff that we go through. Think about your average day at work, right? You get up, you go to work, there's some sort of problem that comes up that you have to solve. You work on it, maybe you ask for some help, you solve the problem, you go home, you do it again the next day. And a lot of times... Our lives feel like that over and over and over again. And if you're like me, you end up doing the same thing that we're doing with this story this morning. We're saying, why does any of this matter? What is it that I'm doing? And what does God have to do anything with this? Is he involved at all 
in my world. Because it's really easy for us to get busy with the normal, regular, ordinary stuff of life and just sort of forget about God. Right? We read all these Old Testament stories about these amazing, visual, powerful acts of God intervening in the world or intervening in our lives. And things just don't seem to be like that these days for me and you. Where was God during 9-11 or the coronavirus? Even more than that, where's God when I go to the grocery store or go to work? Where's God when I can't find my donkeys? Because so far in our story and in the world that we live in, it seems like God's not really the king anymore. Seems like he's not in the picture. And so we end up treating him just like Saul and the servant do in this story. We sort of say, well, we finally run into a problem that I can't solve on my own. So I better call on God. He'll help me out to solve this problem. And then I can sort of get back to normal life again. But I want us to see this morning that there's actually a lot more to this story and therefore to our lives as well. There's an intrusion that's about to happen, an interruption that's about to happen. And it's going to show us that God still is the king. Look with me at the change from verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 said, So they went up to the city, and they were entering the city. They saw Samuel coming out towards them on the way to the high place. Verse 15, But God had revealed to Samuel the day before Saul came, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry is has come to me. Now, the way I just read verse 15 is probably different than it is in your Bible, but that's because it's meant to pop off the page to you. The way I read it to you is the way that it's actually written in the Hebrew. Verse 15 starts with, but God revealed. Because it interrupts our story. It's an intrusion into this mundane story about donkeys. At the moment we start to ask, where is God? This verse reminds us that God is actually still there in the background. He hasn't disappeared. He hasn't been relegated to the sidelines. In fact, he's still the king. But God is doing something. And what's he doing? Verse, six, verse 16, I will send you a man. Right here, Saul, wandering around the countryside, looking for his lost donkeys, going from place to place, meeting different people, the whole thing looking kind of random and mundane. But God says, I will send you a man. This interruption in the chapter is meant to shake us from this idea that there's anything mundane or random happening in the world, 
in this story or in ours. This is what the old Bible theologians call providence. Dale Ralph Davis, who you've heard us quote in a lot of these sermons so far, defines providence this way. He says, providence is that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that God has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and is doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff in our lives. And so that's why even a search for lost donkeys matters. You see, the idea of our passage this morning is that even when we can't see it, even when we can't understand it, even when we don't expect it, God is still the king and he's still at work. Proverbs 16 says, A man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so God's providential ruling over everything and everyone means that he's doing that not just in this story, but in our lives. You and I are included in the way that God rules over everything. There's nothing mundane in this story, and there is nothing mundane in your lives. Look at verse 16 again. What's God's heart behind doing this by working this way? Saul shall save my people, for I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. In the midst of the rebellious hearts of the Israelites, in the midst of the evil that's in the world that you and I experience, the evil in our own hearts, God's providential ruling of everything serves his compassion and his care for his people. When you experience the pain in the world, when you experience the guilt of your own evil, remember that God's compassion is going to get the final word. There's nothing happening mundane in your life. God's compassion and his providence are behind all of it. So our big idea is that God is still the king. He's still at work. And so we're going to look at two ways in which he's at work. God's the king at work through his people. And God's the king at work in his people. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite? From the least of the tribes of Israel? It is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So Saul doesn't understand how he can be the right person if he's descended from Benjamin. He doesn't get what Samuel's talking about, but Samuel insists he is the right person. So they're going to go and eat together. Jump down with me to verse 27. 
As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So we said God works through his people and in his people. Through his people. We've seen multiple characters already in this story. And a lot of them, like a lot of us, don't even know their part in God's providential plans sometimes. Saul's father sends him to look for the donkeys. He could have sent anybody. His servants suggest that they seek out the man of God. He could have just let them go back home. His servant also provides the silver to pay to talk to Samuel. He could have just kept his money for himself. The young women, they happen to have seen Samuel passing by. They could have easily missed him. There's all these seemingly common, regular people that were actually part of God's plan to bring Saul to Samuel. And so be encouraged this morning that when you're going about your regular life, when you're at the grocery store, when you're at work, God is still at work. You never know when he might be busy building his kingdom somewhere right around you. So live your life as if it's always happening around you, unseen. When we were at Covenant Seminary, my wife would audit a couple classes, and her favorite classes were to take with Jerem Bars, who many of you may know. And Jerem shared a story one time about he and his wife going to buy a car. Regular trip to the car dealership, salesman comes showing them these different cars. Jerem and his wife settle on this one car that they're going to buy, and so then Jerem goes into the office with the salesman to do the paperwork. And the salesman said, uh, can I ask you something? I've been divorced uh, several times. And there's something different about the way that you treat your wife. He said, how are you able to treat her the way that you do? What's different? And from that, Jerem had the opportunity to talk to this man about Jesus. You never know when God is at work in the mundane circumstances surrounding you. But there are other times when we are very aware. Samuel and Saul, God has brought in direct involvement into what he's doing. Both of them are called directly to be involved in the work. Samuel to anoint Saul, Saul to be the king. Samuel doesn't seem to question or hesitate at all. Saul does. Saul's not sure if he's the right guy. But both of them, whether they doubt or hesitate or not, both of them take a step of faith to trust in God when he calls them. And God, in his mercy, even in the midst of Saul's doubt, goes on and gives him additional assurances. So when you and I are called very directly, very visibly, very clearly to be part of God's work, do we step out in faith and trust him? Even in the midst of doubts 
or do we come up with reasons to say no or to let somebody else do the work? There are going to be a lot of times where God is doing work and we're indirectly involved and we don't see it, but there are going to be a lot of times when God invites us to be directly involved in work that he's doing. So are we prepared to step out in faith to do that work? Well, if so, it begs the question, how do we do that? How do we get prepared for what God might call us into? Well, fortunately, God doesn't just work through his people. He also works in them. Let's pick up halfway through verse 1 of chapter 10. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you'll meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men are going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibbeth Elohim. There there's a garrison of, garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Then when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibba, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the other matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So what we see in these final verses is God working in his people through his word, and his spirit. We saw that God revealed his word to Samuel directly. Then he revealed his word to Saul through Samuel. God's word is the primary way that he makes known to us what we're supposed to do. So if we're part of the grand story of God's kingdom, if we're part of the work that he's calling us to do, we have to be allowing him to work in us through his word. Are we in his word enough to see him and to hear his calling? Are we spending time in his word to get to know him and his plans, what he might be calling us to? We have several ways here at church to do that. One is the sermons on Sunday, but also the Bible reading plan that we have, the Bible studies that we have, the ACE classes. Time in God's word, if we're people of God, 
then we have to be people of the word. That's one of the ways that he's working in us. The second is through his spirit. Look back at verse 6. Samuel tells Saul that the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. God's spirit is Saul's assurance of God's presence and work in him. In the midst of Saul doubting about this news that he's gotten, God sends his spirit to assure Saul and to confirm that he would be with him. So Saul can confidently go forward in God's plan. He can confidently go forward and trust what God is going to do through him because of the Spirit. Now in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would sometimes come and go on a person. We're going to see that play out later in our series in 1 Samuel. But the good news for us is that because of Jesus, we can have even more confidence than Saul can. When Jesus died for your and for my sins, the Holy Spirit then became a permanent fixture in our lives, in the lives of every one of God's people. Second Corinthians and Ephesians, Paul tells us that God's Spirit is a seal and a guarantee for us. The Holy Spirit doesn't now come and go in us. It's permanently sealed us. When we placed our faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit now and forever. So be confident in God's work. Be confident in stepping out and trusting that God is doing things around you, sometimes in unseen ways and sometimes in visible ways. His presence in you allows you to boldly step out in faith in the work of of the kingdom that God is doing. As a body of believers here at Restoration, let's together rest in God's word and God's spirit to go out and be part of the work that he wants to do through us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and a story that seems simple and on the surface um, plain maybe even silly, looking for donkeys in the countryside, that it was actually you who orchestrated it all, that you who were at work for the sake of your people, you were the one active the whole time, the king still on the throne, even when we don't see you, and that is still the way that you work today. Help us to be reminded of that and rest in your word and your spirit to do your work. In your name we pray. Amen.